I think you really like my mess. I think we're friends, reluctant friends. Like you have a uncle who you really like, but who's really obnoxious. He's really fun, he's in the bud. So I thought that's what MS is to me. I love him because he's my family. Wow. He's my family. Hello, my friend. You are in for a treat this week. I know I say that every time, and I really do mean it every time. And I especially mean it this time because you are about to meet the luminous Elizabeth Jameson. And who is this luminous being, you might ask? Well, let me tell you. Elizabeth Jameson is an artist and writer who explores what it means to live in an imperfect body as part of the universal human experience. Before her diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, she served as a public interest lawyer representing incarcerated children. She later represented children living with chronic illness and disabilities in their attempts to receive medical care. As her disease progressed, she began using her MRIs to create art as a way of reclaiming agency of her own medical data. She transformed the unsettling clinical images into work that invites people to open up conversations about what it means to have an illness or disability. Her work is part of permanent collections, both nationally and internationally, including the National Institutes of Health, major universities, and medical schools. Her essays have been published in the New York Times, British Medical Journal, Wired Magazine, and MIT's Leonardo Journal. And her essay, Losing Touch, Finding Intimacy, was included in the New York Times book About Us, which was released in September 2019 by Norton Publishing. And her latest project is a podcast called MS Confidential, which is a webcast series of candid conversations on navigating the chaos of MS. Many of her lectures at medical schools and symposium have been recorded and shared, including her TEDx Stanford talk, Learning to Celebrate and Embrace Our Imperfect Bodies. And in fact, that TEDx Stanford talk is how I came to know Elizabeth. And we have stayed in touch ever since. And now you get to meet Elizabeth. And nothing gives me more joy than introducing luminous humans to you, my friend. So sit back. Grab your beverage of choice or put a leash on that hound and walk it about the neighborhood and join me in this incredible conversation with Elizabeth Jameson. What is your story, Elizabeth? How did you become an artist? Can I say, I think I'm an advocate Mm. more than I started out being a public interest lawyer. I love being a public interest lawyer. Then MS happened. I had to curve, shift gears. And then I somehow bumped into art. Never wanted to be an artist because I didn't know you could do that. And I think I looked down on people who went to art school. (laughs) I I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to go to law school. And so then MS happened. Mm -hmm. And I... Had to shift gears. Then I found out I could be an artist. I loved it. And it was so much harder than law. Well, actually, I want to stop you right there. I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, Elizabeth, but I remember you telling me about how your friend sort of 
convinced you to go to an art class. Right. Tell me that story again so people can hear it. Well, when I stopped practicing law and I thought, what am I going to do? Because I grew up wanting to end world hunger. Mm. I thought, well, I can do that. (laughs) You know, I thought, oh, I think it has something to do with my Catholic upbringing. I was going to change the world and the homeless. Yep. No poverty and all this stuff. I had no idea how hard it was to do all that. But that was what I grew up wanting to be a change mm-hmm. agent. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got to be a public interest lawyer. Mm-hmm. And when I had to be switch gears, I didn't know what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And then I was dragged into community art class. And I loved it, fell in love. And then I became an artist. It took me a couple of years and a lot of angst. Then I became a public interest artist. I made it up. I wanted to be a public interest lawyer. (laughs) Why can't I be a public interest artist? That's right. Then when I became a quadriplegic, Mm. I took, oh, oh God, what do I do now? And I decided... You know, I think I may have experiences that I could share with people because I was a non-disabled person. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, now I have to be fed. Wow, I learned a lot about control and marriage and intimacy, the definition of intimacy. Mm-hmm. So then I wrote that article mm-hmm. for the New York Times and then I went, wrote the idea of not being able to touch mm-hmm. what's the role of touching. Yes. And, I'll, and I've had, I'm still wanting to write more and more articles. I'm doing this really exciting project. I'm doing a Zoom cast. I wanted a kitchen table conversations mm-hmm. with people with MS. Mm-hmm. I realized I don't really have a lot of friends with MS. And I really wanted vulnerable, funny conversation without any experts. I love No that. experts. I just wanted people to talk rawly. I think that's a new term that needs to exist, Elizabeth. Rawly. I like rawly. Rawly yeah, is a right. really good like, adverb. <laughs> you have to ask you, Elizabeth, are you doing rawly? Yes, I, I'm hip. I'm absolutely hip. I turned... Uh, Everybody, you heard it here first. Right. And so now I'm doing MS Confidential, Mm -hmm. a monthly Zoomcast. Actually, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Elizabeth, because when you started, the thing I admire so much about you and the thing that I relate to you is we get this impulse and we have to put something into the world in response to that inner impulse. And you get this diagnosis You find out you have MS, your legal career has to change. You become an artist. The art that you make is based on brain scans initially, right? I think I remember you telling me they used to be such a scary thing to look at, right? And when you saw this scary brain scan, what inside of you decided to say, you know what? I'm going to make this beautiful. I'm going to turn this into art. Well, I thought that these scans 
we're touching the sacred. Really, it's our brain. It, the brain is the locus of our personality, mm-hmm. our emotions, our pain. So let's not make it ugly. It's who we are. Well, I think I'm beautiful and boring and ugly and gorgeous and all the mess of life. So I wanted to be able to convey my brain scans in emotions, color. I love that. So, and that's what I did. And then I tried to think of what experience that I've had that might be useful mm-hmm. for other people to expand their knowledge, mm-hmm. like eating so much about control and communication yeah. and how you express your needs. Because mm-hmm. Dave and I had huge fight the first night we went out to dinner and he had to feed me. I was so mad at him and he was so mad at me. And then I realized I couldn't communicate mm-hmm. how I wanted to be fed. Yeah. And he was angry. He thought, oh, he was doing such a great job. He's such a good husband. And I was thinking, what a shit. You know, <laughs> how, how he's feeding me. And I realized, poor thing, I need to communicate to him exactly what I wanted. Otherwise, he's going to feed me the way he thought I wanted to be fed, which is the way he likes to be fed, which is very different than I want. But I know that. Yeah. I've lived him for many years, but I never really know how he liked to eat. Right. So, So... that's the type of articles I like to do. And then I had so many rejections. Mm. It's all waiters here. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I, I want to do something that I love, which is having intimate conversations. Yes. So then I came up with the Zoom kiss. We all get together on Zoom. So we see each other mm. and we talk and laugh and yeah. argue. And it's so great. And there are people I don't know, two people I knew, but not intimately. It was so great. And it, I think it's getting bigger. And I love um, it. I love it. And so. Elizabeth, I want to go back to your New York Times article that you wrote about intimacy, about touch. I reread it just before I got on the phone with you because I wanted to remember. I remember when I first read it, it came out in 2018, which was one of the worst years I've ever had. I lost one of my best friends on Christmas Day 2017. My father died three weeks later at the beginning of 2018. And I put out my first podcast episode that same year. It was just this year of pain commingling with art. And I remember when I saw your article come out, I was so moved by it because it reminded me how complicated human beings are and how intimacy and closeness. And for those of you who haven't read the article, Elizabeth writes about what it's like to lose that same capacity for physical touch because you're kind of locked into your wheelchair, you're locked into your space. And those of us who aren't in wheelchairs, we're not sure how to connect physically 
with people that are in wheelchairs. And it's just this big misunderstanding, kind of like when your husband was trying to feed you and you were like, you're doing it wrong. And the article is such a beautiful meditation on human beings trying to figure out how to make contact. And in your instance, it was the obstacle of physical space and of physical limitations. But what occurred to me as I was reading it today is, I mean, COVID and the past 18 months where we couldn't be together, we all had to be separated physically. Did you feel, Elizabeth, as though, okay, everybody's finally getting a taste of what it's been like to be in my shoes trying to renegotiate intimacy? Did you feel like you were watching what you had to go through writ large with the mass population who had to overcome this physical distance thing? Such a great idea. I wish I could claim that. It's my truth. It's not. I love the fact that none of my friends were traveling. Mm. None of my friends coming to dinner and they're telling me about their wonderful time in Tuscany and their bike riding and doing great Olympic feats in Tuscany before they go to Paris. Oh, God. And I, which is true, I have wonderful friends who are starting to retire and they deserve to do these wonderful things. And a lot of my friends are athletes or aspiring athletes. And I love what they do, but I feel lonely. Yes. A little bit when I see picture after picture of their Tuscany vacation, what they did in Paris or Greece. And now they're stuck at home and it's available so we can talk. And what well, we couldn't have dinner at the initial part of the pandemic. Yeah. But we did Zoom calls a lot. Yeah. And I loved it. I actually loved it. My jealousy, I never had to be jealous. So I loved it. I love that you're just owning that because that makes absolute sense to me. I absolutely get that. That's one of the things I love about you, Elizabeth. And what makes you such a powerful artist is I think you're so good at articulating the three-dimensionality of whatever it is we are as humans. You're so honest about what it's like to be you. And that is, I think, what makes art worth consuming is when somebody's being completely real about what it's like. And so would you say that as you sort of matured as an artist, it started off in visual arts. It became more about writing and writing articles and things like that. What feels different and new about podcasting and about making art that's for the ears? Well, my MS confidential Mm -hmm. is eyes and ears. Mm. We all look at each other because it's a Zoom cast. Mm -hmm. So we're all looking at each other and really relating I think when we're successful, we're really looking at each other's eyes and noticing our body positions. Mm -hmm. And at least I'm imagining we're that terrific. That's my goal anyway. And I think the visual plus oral communications and the whole sensuality of that we express. Mm -hmm. And actually, I love my co-hosts 
we've really bonded together. And one is this wonderful man named Kyle Kronick. We found him on Instagram. We wanted a man, and he has quite an Instagram presence. And he's in North Carolina. Mm. He's the funniest guy and really interesting. And he's such a great addition to what we're doing. And none of us knew each other. Mm-hmm. So that was great. Wow. And he is the pretty aggressive form of MS. Mm. So he's young. He's 33, mm-hmm. which is really, it's a baby yeah. compared to me. Yeah. And I love yeah. the fact that I can witness what he's going through. Mm-hmm. And we laugh and have lots of fun. And another person is a wonderful woman in San Francisco, former ballet dancer. She's a photographer, now an artist. She's a baby. She's 33. And she's really, she's really struggling with her life as all 33-year-olds are struggling. I mean, she's a human being. Yeah. And at that age where you're really trying to define who I am, how ambitious do I want to be mm-hmm. or not? And I love the picture. She's very open and vulnerable about, I don't know what the hell is going on with me, mm-hmm. but I'm doing it. I'm showing up and I'm trying to make it all work. Mm. And so everyone has their own struggles. And the, the third woman is in Boston. She's a physician. She actually does a lot of COVID mm. in her practice. Mm-hmm. And she has MS, but she's not have many symptoms. Or I hate to say that, but she's mm-hmm. not that physically affected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But she has her own mental issues about how she digests the fact she has this disease. Yeah, yeah. And we all add something to the mix. And I'm the most advanced mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. And so I was curious because I wasn't sure what the mix would work, but it seems to. And we really have been finding a lot. And last week, last month, we talked about what is MS to each of us. And I said, I think I really like my MS. I think we're friends, reluctant friends. Like you have a uncle who you really like, but who's really obnoxious. And I... Hate at times, so you have to greet yourself at Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, that's Uncle So and So. He's really fun, but he's a pain in the butt. So I thought that's what MS is to me. I love him because he's my family. Wow, he's, he's my family, and I want to love my family members, but I don't like them all the time, and so. I was trying to put how we can 
love each other, mm. love ourselves, mm. despite the fact, or maybe because of the fact, where we have very difficult parts of ourselves, yeah. which is whether it's cancer or MS mm-hmm. or it's bad allergies, yeah. whatever, and really try to love ourselves despite the mess of our life. And so I've been playing with all this. Mm-hmm. And I also, I've been trying to envision my MS as a peacock. A I peacock? Love peacock. Because peacocks are gorgeous. They are. Colorful. I love color. Mm-hmm. I love beauty. And I think, gee, you know, if I have this disease, I want to love it. I want it to be beautiful because I'm vain and I want something beautiful. And I visioned the peacock on my shoulder and every once in a while the talents really draw blood and they're kind of nasty, this bird. And sometimes it's horrible, very painful. Yeah. There's blood and uh, and I keep thinking this horrible bird beautiful but just toxic awful and then other times I the bird coos and it's a companion and I like just like the uncle who's embarrassing at Thanksgiving dinner so I thought well I can live with my MS if I envision my MS as, as a personality that's incredible and it's when Kyle said, no, I hate my MS. I don't relate to what you're saying at all. And I said, good. I mean, we all have to do what what, what works. vision. And he's young. And Jessica is young. So I think they should hate their MS, maybe. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm in a whole different stage of my life than her but I just I want us all to love each other yeah and all the messiness of our lives that's right that's such a beautiful question and I've been like dabbing my eyes because I think it's so incredible your impulse Elizabeth to make meaning of something so painful by making it beautiful I mean that's one of the reasons I find you to be such an, an incredible human being. But I also, it makes me think about how in our culture, especially with social media and Instagram and Facebook and all the ways that we compare our lives to other people's lives, our bodies to other people's bodies. It's like we've been living in this house of mirrors where we think everybody else has it so good and we can't make peace with our own brokenness. And I think if social media went away tomorrow, it would probably help us settle into these bodies, into these lives. You know, some of us don't have MS, but some of us have sick parents or sick children, or we're dealing with some debilitating long hauler COVID issue. And I think One of the dangers of being alive right now is that we're constantly bombarded by these false images of everyone else's life being so much better than ours. And when Instagram and Facebook went down recently, 
it was kind of nice not looking at everybody else's perfect workout videos or vacations to Tuscany or whatever the heck it is. That impulse, that practice of taking the thing that is causing us the most pain and asking what if it was beautiful? What if it was the uncle at Thanksgiving that drives us bananas? How might we make peace with it? I just find that so beautiful and so helpful. And I cannot wait to see what you do with that concept, Elizabeth. Thank you. I really am just starting to really think about if it makes sense. Maybe I'm being too positive, but I really would like to make room for the awfulness of my disease and also the good parts. Yeah. And I don't want to deny all aspects of how we deal with the disease or how rough it is. My disease may be bad, but the other people's disease is so much worse. Yeah. I just want to make sure that I make room for everyone. I think there needs to be room for hating the disease, loving the disease, turning it into a peacock, all the things, right? We need all the options. So Elizabeth, I have a couple more questions for you. Completely changing the subject for a second. Because I still do a lot of coaching for people that are giving big talks or that are going to give TEDx talks or TED talks, people love to hear from other TED speakers what it's like to plan and give a TED Talk. And you have an extra experience of it because you planned and delivered a TED Talk in a way that so much more limited than what a lot of people get to experience. You were dealing with MS and planning and committing a TED Talk to memory and all of those things. What do you remember about that experience? What was it like for you? What was the best? What was the worst? I loved it, every moment of it, although it's very, very stressful. I'm a quadriplegic, so not only am I dealing with a very stressful event for anyone, I'm in a wheelchair. I'm a quadriplegic. I have no use of my hands, so I I can't make gestures. So you're sort of limited to your mouth, actually, and... A lot of the advice for TED Talk is to stand up tall and broad, be powerful and look powerful, and use your voice to establish command of the audience. Well, I can't do anything. I'm in a wheelchair. I can't use my hands. So I thought, well, I just have to show up who I am because that's what I've got right now. So that was hard look into these videos on how to give it to a talk. And I couldn't do half of what they advise. You didn't tell me that, though. You were great. You were so supportive. Well, I happen to believe that gestures and vocal intonations as advice are just not that helpful because what the audience is there for is authenticity. And I have tears in my eyes right now because I was in the audience when you gave your TED Talk. And The audience fell madly in love with you within about 90 seconds of you coming out on stage. Do you remember, Elizabeth, the big laughs you got and how people rushed to you at the break to talk to you? Do you remember 
how that audience responded to you while you were on stage or is it all a blur to you? Oh, yeah, I couldn't really see the audience. So I don't know. The lighting is such you really can't see anyone in the audience. At least I could. But I just love public speaking. Mm-hmm. And I just love the whole experience. I'm honored and grateful that I had that experience. Mm. I'm so lucky. It was so incredible. You were so magical up there. And I will tell you, you may not have been able to see the audience, but you made magical eye contact with the audience. And not everybody can do that. You were able to make each person feel like they were the only one in the room. And you did that with your presence and with your eyes. And it turns out that's actually, in my opinion, 10x more important than using your body and making this big physical thing happen. You were just magnificent up there. So in case I never got the chance to tell you that. Thank you. When I got MS the first time in the waiting room, there were three people in wheelchairs and I did not want to acknowledge them. And I didn't establish eye contact. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to be in a wheelchair. I may have MS, I'm not going to be in a wheelchair. I work out, I'm a swimmer. I'm not going to be one of these people. And I was terrible. I didn't know how to connect with people in wheelchairs. And even though I was public and just lawyer and quote unquote good guy, I was a jerk. I was scared. Um, people who had a disability. And the first month after my diagnosis, my husband and I went to the National Conference of People with MS, and there was a luncheon, and we were sat at table with, there was a woman who was being fed by an assistant, and David got up and went to the car. He said, I could not take it. And I sat there. I just was horrified. I stayed there for maybe 20 minutes and I left too. I didn't want to see someone being fed. And to me, it was sort of disgusting. And I had no interest, didn't ask her a question. Now, because I'm the person who has to be fed, I realize I, of course, I didn't have comfort with it. So you're going to make a mistake yeah. if you're trying to get to approach people with disabilities. You're going to make a mistake because you don't know. And I feel like it's okay. How yeah. would you know? How would you be comfortable finding comfort with a quadriplegic who has to be fed their coffee or given their coffee? You're going to be awkward as hell and you're going to fail. You're going to have the coffee stain all over my silk blouse because you don't know how to comfortably have a person sit there may be hot coffee yeah. and burning their mouth. So, I mean, it's a learning curve. And I come from a 
place of incredible humility, humility, because I wasn't good at it. And so I feel like if you're going to fail yeah. and you will learn if you want to. I just want to say people, employers, it's okay, you're to do the wrong thing. But if you ask and relax and work, people, what boring, wonderful, beautiful, average people. It's so interesting. I guess I think everything's interesting, but disability and people are disabilities are fascinating people. Yeah, they are. And they have so much gifts to offer. And I hope I do too. But I mean, not everyone with a disability has lots of gifts, but a lot of them do. And when I, with persons blind, I think, wow, tell me something. Tell me about your story. And I want to learn from them. Yeah. It's, I don't know what it means to be blind. I can tell you what it means to be a quadriplegic. But wow, if you're blind, what do you think is good about being blind? What's awful about being blind? What's boring about being blind? It's just the whole thing. The whole gamut. And that's why I loved the brain and why I did brain scans. It's because I think the brain is so fascinating. Just. It's a miracle. Yeah. That's beautiful. Elizabeth, you're a miracle. I just knew you were going to be amazing to talk to. And I was not wrong about that. And I just thank you for making time for this and being so brilliant. You're just amazing. I'm I'm just normal, amazing and boring. And, and, you know, sometimes absolutely amazing. But that's like one day a year. And then the other times I'm average. Yeah, I I get it. I get it. I get it. Well, either way, I really, I'm just so grateful. One thing I want to say, and that's really important, is that I'm aware that I'm blessed that I have the financial ability to be able to accomplish what I accomplish. I have wonderful aids. I have a great cushion on my wheelchair which prevents me from getting pressure sores. And that is to be cash only. Insurance companies don't pay for these really expensive cushions. Yeah. But who would have known that when I knew that you had to buy incredible cushions for a wheelchair, you know? And when I go to places where people don't have much money, which is the majority of people who are quadriplegics, or disabled, and they're stuck with what they're generally offered by insurance companies. I could not do what I do without. And I, I just am feel so wanting to advocate for access to quality healthcare. Yeah. yeah. And I really would like to have our healthcare 
would be accessible to everyone, every race, every class. And that's what I learned also from COVID, how much of disparity exists and racial disparity exists in the United States. I knew that, but I really knew it after COVID when you saw the zip code. Depending on zip code, people lived. Depending on zip code, the people died of COVID. Mm -hmm. And it's like when I was at the Spinal Cord Injuries Center, which is where I work out with people who are paraplegic, quadriplegic. And it's interesting, people who have lower income, have cushions that aren't as good. I mean, wheelchairs not as good and cushions that aren't as good. And they wouldn't be doing incredible things in art or they wouldn't be writing for the New York Times if they have pressure sores. Right. When people say, oh, what you're doing is great. I'm so lucky. Yeah. I'm so lucky. And that's huge that you recognize your privilege. I think we all sort of got schooled on privilege over the past 18 months. I know I have been really? in a million ways. And it's just, it's part of the waking up process, I guess, that we were supposed to have done over the, you know, my way of finding meaning in things is earth school is full of lessons. And that was one of my big lessons over the past year and a half is just how much privilege I have and how lucky I am and how it's dumb luck. It's just dumb luck. Dumb luck. There's certain things I can be proud of. A lot of it is just dumb luck. So Elizabeth, thank you so much. You're the best. Bye. Hey, if you're still with me and you haven't already, hit subscribe so you can get my latest episodes delivered hot off the press. And feel free to share this with someone who could use a little inspiration. If you're looking to go further on this journey as a communicator, head over to bronwyncommunications.com forward slash subscribe. And on Monday mornings, you will receive a communication tip to work with for the week. And on Saturday mornings, you'll receive a short little email with three things I am listening to or reading or digging right now. Also find me on my new YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash this is Bronwyn, B-R-O-N-W-Y-N, where I drop new content every Thursday covering strategies for getting more confident during moments of conflict. And speaking of conflict, if you're dealing with a tough client or work situation and you need better skills for managing difficult conversations, check out my new online course called the No Enemy Client Conversation. And that is noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com. That's noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com. As always, you can find me on Instagram at bronwynsf, where I offer a lot of behind the scenes insights into how I make all this content and run my business for those coaches and solopreneurs who need a little inspo. And lastly, if your company or organization needs a high voltage keynote speaker, who knows how to melt faces and blow minds virtually or in real life, I'm your gal. Shoot me a note. Let's make some magic happen. That's Bronwyn at BronwynCommunications.com. Take care and shine on.